Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. President Trump has made no secret of his desire to unroll uh, some of the policies of former President Barack Obama. And among those are clean car standards uh, that are enforced by the Environmental Protection Agency. And here to talk about that is Carol Browner, chair of the board uh, for and for the League of Conservative of Conservation Voters, as well as uh, a former EPA administrator from 1993 to 2001, the longest serving administrator uh, on record. Carol, thank you so much for joining us. I just want to get a sense, first of all, of what currently uh, Scott Pruitt, the current EPA head, uh, is looking to do with respect to clean car standards and how quickly it could really move. Well, well, thank you. And thank you for having me. Um, what Mr. Pruitt is up to is basically trying to looking at rolling back standards that were agreed to with the car companies. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with President Obama at the beginning of his term, and we sat down with the car manufacturers. Uh, EPA has authority to make cars cleaner, Department of Transportation to make them more efficient. And so we all worked together to craft a program that would give car companies sort of what they needed rather than two different agencies regulating them, one set of sort of requirements. And, and, and they actually stood with President Obama in the Rose Garden and announced this framework agreement. And then it's been, you know, implemented over the years. And now suddenly uh, the new head of the EPA, Mr. Pruitt, is talking about, you know, rolling it back. And, and it, it's just, it, it, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, right? Because last week alone you had Ford and GM announcing they're going to make more electric cars. Uh, you know, you have a resurgence in the car industry. They're selling more cars last year than they sold, I think, in any year. So it's hard to understand, you know, why they're doing this. The consumer wants a cleaner car. They want a car that pollutes less. They want a car that goes further on a tank of gas. They want to save money at the pump. They want their kids to drink, uh, breathe uh, clean air. Uh, excuse me, Car Carol, I don't know. Let me just uh, focus on a slightly different uh, area involving uh, Scott Pruitt and the uh, EPA. I don't know whether you're familiar with uh, Michael uh, Dorson. He is a professor uh, at the University of Cincinnati, and uh, he is under consideration, uh, under uh, potential nomination, and vote uh, in the, uh, the Senate for a position in the EPA. And while the Democrats have blocked his uh, appointment, uh, Scott Pruitt has appointed him as an advisor, and uh, it turns out that Mr. Dorson operated a nonprofit research foundation. It was called the Toxicology Excellence for Risk Assessment. The contributors to that organization include DuPont, Monsanto, American Chemistry Council. Is this part and parcel of the way the, uh, the agency works on a regular basis, or is this something unusual? Um, it strikes me, based on you know, what you're telling me, as unusual. Look, the, the, you know, Congress created the agency. Congress passed laws saying certain people who run parts of the agency, Mr. Pruitt and people who run other parts, should be subject to a review by the Senate, should be you know, called up to testify on why they are qualified, and then should be voted on by the Senate. You can't actually give someone one of these jobs without going through their process. It's just the way the system works. It's a part of the 
accountability. And, you know, it, it, it's, uh, I think, deeply troubling if uh, this is an effort to simply get around that kind of transparency and that kind of accountability. Cool. But, you know, I will tell you, as a former administrator watching Mr. Pruitt, in some ways I'm just no longer surprised. I mean, this is a man who sued the agency 14 times. He doesn't apparently believe in science. He doesn't uh, appear to be committed to sort of the transparency and accountability that are really important to how, you know, the government does its work on behalf of the American people. Well, and just to present sort of why uh, President Trump and EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt are trying to roll back some of these clean car standards. Uh, President Trump, during his campaign, was talking about giving all sources of energy a fair shake. In other words, uh, trying to cater to particularly to the coal uh, miners, saying that that they should be able to uh, continue with their production without getting penalized by these caps. Carol, I have to wonder, as somebody who has vast experience as the head of the EPA, how much power does this agency really have to unilaterally enforce or roll back regulations? In other words, could they uh, in other, roll back uh, the entire clean car standards without sign-off by a majority of uh, Congress? Um, yes. They can roll things back uh, without the, the, the approval of Congress, because what happens is Congress passes a law, tells EPA, go do the detail work. You know, we've given you broad guidance. We want cars more fuel efficient. We want it over a certain period of time. In, in this case, there's also a Supreme Court decision that says, EPA, you should be regulating dangerous carbon pollution from cars. And so um, the EPA then sort of goes through a process, and it's an important process. They tell the public, here's what we're thinking. They write it all down. Here's why we're thinking it. Here's the law. Here's the science. Tell us what you think. Car companies, tell us what you think. Unions, tell us what you think, etc. Then the agency takes all those comments makes a decision based on those comments and issues a final regulation or rule, which then becomes enforceable. This is how it has been done since EPA was created. And it, there's a reason it's done this way. It's fair. It's transparent. It engages the, the, you know, all of the, the parties that ha have an interest. If Mr. Pruitt wants to undo a rule that's gone through that process, he will have to go through the process himself. Um, now, Congress can always step in and just vacate the law, just say, but we're changing that law, uh, no more, more law. But Mr. Pruitt is not free to do whatever he wants. He must follow the laws, and he must follow the science. And in this case, you even have a Supreme Court decision saying EPA should regulate carbon pollution. You have a fuel efficiency law signed by uh, Bush, too, saying EPA, Department of Transportation, put together the rules to make cars more efficient. So he's not free to do just anything. But what's very concerning here is, as you guys know, industry needs predictability and certainty. They need to know what's expected of them over a period of time so they can make investments, so they can find the sort of common-sense, cost-effective uh, solutions. And so when you pull the rug out midstream, you're getting rid of all that predictability and uncertainty, and it is unfair to everyone. Carol, uh, just uh, want to get your thoughts on something specific having to do with biofuels, um, possible reduction in biodiesel requirements and a proposal to allow exported renewable fuel to count toward that domestic quota. Uh, that affects the biofuel industry and also affects politics in Iowa. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think this is another good example of where they just appear to be all over the map and, you know, again, uh, not giving industry the kind of certainty and predictability, right? You have 
uh, apparently, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, Mr. Pruitt said one thing, then the White House is saying another thing. Uh, you know, these guys, you know, they should at least get on the same page. Um, they won't be free to just do either of these things. They have to, you know, again, follow the process, follow um, the the law. Um, you know, biofuels have played a role in lessening um, air pollution. Uh, you know, the good news is today we do a lot of other things that help right. to lesson pollution but you know they, they got to stop just thinking out loud we got to leave it there but i thank you very much carol browner is a former epa administrator uh joining us to uh, tell us more about uh, the epa how it works and uh, is from the league of conservation voters based in washington dc All right, let's turn our attention now to uh, fees and also we'll talk a little bit about value of funds. Uh, David Winters is the chief executive of Wintergreen Advisors, uh, helping to manage more than half a billion dollars. They're based in Mountain Lakes, New Jersey, and David joins us in our 1130 studios. David, always a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Uh, very interesting uh, comments and, and analysis that you've done. I wonder if you could just take us through this having to do with what you describe as being kind of the gloss on a lot of these index products is that they are low fee products and you've come out with slightly different uh well a different review well pim we've done a lot of fundamental research uh because you've had this boom in passive investing and it's attracted huge amounts of capital and what's attracted people is this idea that it's a low fee and that um you know therefore it's also diversified and low risk and what we've done is is delved in beyond the fee to look at the fact that there's a lot of dilution behind uh, these index funds because they vote 97% of the time in favor of corporate compensation plans, and that's about 2.6% a year. And then if you take the buybacks, which actually 54% of the time offset the dilution, that's another 1.7%. So the actual cost of an index fund is about 4.3%. Wait, hold, just just back up for a second. So you're basically saying that because a lot of these index funds just vote along with whatever the corporate leadership wants to do, there are sort of costs inherent to that. The Essentially, the index funds, which started as a good idea, Lisa, have become enablers for higher costs because the dilution is a hidden fee that people don't see, and it actually comes out of investors' pockets. So index investing has become expensive. And a lot of the returns have come from Fang and Friends. Okay, so but but just backing up and taking a bigger picture view, uh, you know, David, uh, you have to wonder how much previous mutual fund investors or four hundred one k fund managers really took an active approach prior to the uh, the, the surge in uh, ETF involvement. Were they really such governors of costs? Were they so much more active in the past, or were they basically uh, sort of passive investors in hiding? Well, in fact, if you do the numbers and they're on Bloomberg, the R-squared of a lot of of mutual funds is very close to an index fund. And there is a lot of, uh, of voting in favor. But active investors like ourselves have the choice not to go for big dilution. So, you know, one of our big positions has a 30 basis point uh, level of dilution. So therefore, when you look at it on a like-for-like basis, it's much less expensive what we're doing at Wintergreen because there's not as much dilution in the companies in which we invest. And dilution over time 
is a mugging of the shareholders. I got to understand dilution, and maybe you can just give me the quick uh, definition for it, because I understand, you know, you can dilute someone's value by issuing more shares, for example. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly, Pim. In other words, every year, the boss wants a raise, and we're all for management getting paid well if they do a good job. But essentially, it comes, if it's 2.6%, and over time, it's grown, and the buybacks are also used to offset this dilution, it comes out of investors' pockets. And it's it's a lot of money. It's uh, if you add it all up, it's almost $900 billion in 2016 that investors aren't getting, basically. Going into the pockets of uh, of the uh, corporate executives who are granted these stock options or are compensated. In right, and way. there's ways okay. of doing it, you know, where you wouldn't have such dilution and still executives can make money. But it means that in, a, in an expensive market, these uh, these companies, you know, the, uh, the passive have become momentum monsters. And, they, you know, the market weight... You buy more of what goes up, and unlike value investing, where we think the real where people should be focused today, um, where there's a lot for what you pay for, the index investors are essentially buying what's expensive, what's risky, and they essentially enable higher and higher costs. So I, I'm trying to figure out if this is just a symptom of a lot of money going into markets and what would normally happen with inflows versus. ETFs and passive investments, because I think that there's a conflation often of the two. And I think that you could argue that with a lot of money sloshing about, and that enables the companies, not necessarily the trend into passive. How would you how would you negate that? Well, I think that, you know, investors really ultimately um, should, you know, get a lot for what they pay for. And the the ETFs, which have been the, you know, the big movement of late, and the index funds, again, they vote 97% of the time um, for these plans. And I think there are other, the, the key thing is that active managers can use the vote, which is what ERISA you know, says you're supposed to do for the benefit of shareholders. And you've had these two things happen, which is over time hurting investors. This is fascinating to me because it also highlights how we're probably going to see uh, an increasing amount of activism among the investors who truly are active, who want to uh, uh, clamp down on this, especially as valuations get so high that people start uh, wondering whether we actually have that much more room to run. David Winters, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, David Winters is Chief Executive Officer of Wintergreen Advisors, which is based in Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. Definitely uh, the active versus passive debate will not go away, but I do like to just sort of get a question of is is this really passive we're talking about or just mob think which has been prevalent over the past few years Uh, We hear a lot about the opioid epidemic in more rural areas among working class people. We've been hearing about the thousands and thousands of people uh, that are dying of drug overdoses. Uh, But there is also an opioid epidemic on Wall Street. And here to talk about that is Max Abelson, a finance reporter for Bloomberg News, who wrote a phenomenal story, really uh, ought to read it. Opioids hit Wall Street, bringing pain and opportunity to profit. Max, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Can you just give us a sense of how pervasive uh, the opioid crisis on Wall Street is? Lisa, thank you for those wonderful words. Well, you know, Gina Smilek, my co-writer, and I, um, you know, there's there's bad news and good news when it comes to figuring out how pervasive this is. The bad news is when people die of opiate overdoses, there, there isn't data on what their professions were. 
So that's the bad news. We can't tell you, you know, there were there were X uh, overdoses on Wall Street because of opioids and, and Y this year. The good news when it comes to understanding what's going on here is that Gina and I set out to find find out if, you know, the, the if the opioid epidemic that's absolutely, you know, spreading like a virus through rural communities, working class and poor communities, as as your listeners know, you know, to find out if it was touching Wall Street. And, and you know, all we did is the normal stuff. We just got on the phone. We got on the phone with people in New Canaan and Darien and New York City. And what we found out is we spoke to more than half a dozen current and former traders, bankers, private equity people. And they told us these like agonizing stories of what happens when you become addicted to Oxycontin and other opioids and, and these people's lives, you know, hit near ruin. Um, and it and it's not a uh, in, in out of the ordinary experience. This is something that's that's coming to Wall Street. So, Max, uh, I'm wondering if you could offer up some uh, of the examples in this story, and they really are uh, quite moving, and then maybe tie that into the uh, profit that drives a lot of the opioid manufacturing industry. Pam, what a good question. Well, the, the, the one that hits me really hard, like hit me in the gut when I heard it, to answer both of your questions at once, was this guy, he was like in his 30s, he's working for one of the biggest banks at the time, at, one, he, at the time he was working for one of the biggest banks in the world on a trading floor, and he was put on a deal for, it was like a pharma deal connected to opioid dependency, and he smiled to himself, and the reason he smiled is that he was at the height of his addiction to Vicodin, and he was also using Percocet. And and these are these are really strong painkillers. He started using them um, because he wanted to take that edge off of hangovers when he was at work. And he got dependent on, um, you know, he would use dozens of pills a day. And... You know, he, he so on the one hand, he was like working on this deal and which goes to show that Wall Street is profiting from both the um, sales of of pharmaceuticals, but also profiting from the from the industry that's that's being brought about in order to, to deal with it. Um, you know, and, and, he, and this guy was working on the trading floor on that deal at the same time that he was at the peak of his addiction. He, he's now clean. You got a lot of big time investors in this too, don't you? Oh yeah, I mean, look, just this month. I mean, this month alone, we're a couple of weeks into October. Um, you know, let's see. Um, there was a um, Insys Therapeutics. Okay, Insys Therapeutics sells. Uh, you guys, you listeners, know about fentanyl. It's a pill. It's a fentanyl-based pill. It's called Subsys. New Jersey Attorney General accused Insys of selling this fentanyl drug to more people than it should have been selling it to and at much higher doses. And you look at Incess's uh, investors, you know, Orbamed, a, a really big private equity firm, uh, Folger Hill, a hedge fund that your listeners probably know about. Um, you know, th these are things that are going on now. Uh, incidentally, just a couple months ago, Endo International, which John Paulson, Steve Cohen, Goldman Sachs, TPG, their investors, they sell opioids, Opana ER, and the, the FDA had to ask them to stop doing it. Um, because I, I think if I'm remembering correctly, because of viruses that were breaking out among intravenous drug users, although I'm not positive about that, that I think that's the reason they had to stop selling it. Max, you know, I'm struck. There have been stories, certainly in the 1980s, you think of Wall Street, you think of uh, cocaine and, and, and lots of hard drug use and, and hard partying. Uh, that's calm down a bit no i mean where does where does where does oxycodone and and and, and some of these uh prescription drugs fall into that whole story great question well for one thing cocaine has not disappeared from from wall street you know here, here's here's a good way of, of of dealing with that so the main character in this story is a really um 
interesting, likable guy named Trey Laird. Uh, Connecticut, fancy, um, you know, joked to me that he was wearing head-to-toe vineyard vines when he went to rehab. And honestly, you know what, Lisa? I do not think he was kidding. I think he really was wearing all vineyard vines. He's just that kind of guy. But look, um, you know, Trey was using cocaine. Um, You know, he was also drinking alone at the height of his addiction. But, you know, the cocaine, which is sort of socially acceptable, was sort of known, um, you know, entertaining clients, that kind of thing. I think, um, you know, that's sort of just a reality that um, has stayed with Wall Street. But, you know, he was using so much Oxycontin that it was 160 milligrams every day. And you're supposed to start with 10 for every 12 hours. and, you know, it took over his life and he was really brutally honest with me. Um, you know, he went to rehab in New Canaan and Trey is now uh, one of the proprietors of the lighthouse. And we wrote about the lighthouse. You know, it will cost you if you want a room by yourself in New Canaan, $15,000 for the month, uh, $15,500 actually. And look, I mean, we visited and there are bankers there and executives. And these are people who are, you know, some of them are alcoholics, but some of them are addicted to pain pills. And Trey, what Trey said to us is that, look, you know, this is this is coming. You know, th- this is going to invade every single industry. And, um, you know, he might be right. It's a very sobering story and one that I encourage everyone. I know we all encourage everyone to read it. Opioids hit Wall Street, bringing pain and opportunity to profit. Thanks very much, uh, Max Abelson and also uh, Gina Smilik. My really, pleasure. Well done. I, I got to say, uh, you know, we see these images all the time of people who overdose in cars throughout the country uh, and their children in the back seats. And, uh, you know, it just... It's, it's very difficult, but it, it's something that needs to be addressed, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I'm glad uh, you were able to bring some of this to light for us. Thanks very much, uh, Max Abelson, finance reporter for uh, Bloomberg News. Time to uh, check on what's going on in markets and also just to sort of focus a little bit first on on Apple. And I want to bring in uh, John Butler. Uh, John is our senior telecom services and equipment analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Also joining us, of course, Dave Wilson, Bloomberg stocks columnist and blogger at MLive. Go on the Bloomberg. Go ahead, send Dave an email at dwilson at Bloomberg.net. And John Butler, let's begin with you and, and Apple. Are we supposed to read through any of the remarks or details or speculation about the suppliers to Apple? about the popularity and the sell-through of the iPhone 8? So let's start with, there's reports out of China from the Economic Daily News that suppliers have seen up to 50% uh, cuts in uh, supply cuts. You know, there's supplying parts. Orders, thank you, for the iPhone 8. Uh, One little tidbit I picked up this morning that I thought was really interesting is Rogers, which is Canada's largest wireless operator, uh, characterized demand for the iPhone 8 as anemic and said everyone is waiting for the iPhone 10, which is sort of consistent with, I think, what everyone was feeling going into the announcement in September. It really is the first You mean experts, people who like watch Apple day and night. They thought that was going to happen. Right, because it's really the first time that Apple has launched two separate devices with different launch dates, but they're only six weeks apart, right? Okay, but but here's my question, okay? If if Apple has uh, such demand for the iPhone X, how are they going to manufacture enough to meet demand? And then won't people be pushed into the iPhone 8 anyway? Well, that's in the mix, right? That's one of the big questions is, are they going to have 
enough supply to meet demand for the iPhone 10, which judging from the order flow and or order activity for iPhone 8 parts might suggest that it's stronger than they expected for the holidays. So the question is, or the answer is, we don't really know yet whether they're going to meet holiday demand or not. Over time, I think that ultimately supply catches up with demand. Yeah. Right. Stock's down uh, 2.5% well, right now. I was just going to say, it's it's down uh, exactly 2.6%. It's the biggest drop since August 10th. And uh, Dave Wilson, how much is this really driving the declines across broader U.S. equity indexes, which are also having their worst morning uh, since August? It's one piece of a bigger puzzle, no question. I mean, when you consider Apple's been up as much as 42% this year, you can sort of understand why you would get a pullback. But beyond that, you really have to look at the response to the third quarter earnings reports as they come in. I just put together a post for the Markets Live blog. You have 15 companies in the S&P 500 that reported today before the opening bell. Ten of them have fallen in early trading in response to those results. And that doesn't count the likes of eBay and American Express, which had numbers out late yesterday, and they're down as well. And think about it. One of the arguments that's been made for stock valuations where they are is that companies are increasing their sales and their earnings. So that's going to justify the higher prices that investors have been paying. And then you get the results on a day like today, and you wonder whether that thesis at least has some holes poked in the argument. Well, I, I want to get a sense, John, from you, because if there is such incredible demand for these higher priced phones, right, because the iPhone ten is supposed to be a higher price point than iPhone 8, doesn't that suggest that the economy is actually doing wonderfully? I'm not sure what it says about the economy per se, because the iPhone is high priced and it plays in that premium category. So... I think a lot of the people that are buying the iPhone are somewhat immune to economic trends. That would be my guess. Can I just throw in things like natural disasters here? I mean, because, you know, this is we've been talking about a lot of the larger economic news and how they have been affected by hurricanes and now, of course, wildfires in northern California. And that's got to put uh, some kind of damper on, you know, retail sales. You're not going to worry about getting your new phone when, you know, you see your house floating down the street. So, I, I mean, it just... I don't know whether this is necessarily something you have to read large into and, you know, maybe that we're just getting a little bit of profit taking. I mean, you got companies in addition to said Apple up, what, 40 something percent, Dave? As much as, yes. Okay, yeah. But if you take a look at, you know, companies like Boeing, which I don't think anyone calls, you know, a big, fast growth stock, stock's up 65% this year. So, I mean, that beats Apple by a handy margin. So, you know, you got to kind of take it all with a grain of salt, John. Right? There, there's definitely a lot at, at play here, Pim. And the one thing I'd say is, you know, I think even if Apple has had launches before where they can't meet demand out of the blocks and yet they don't lose users. I mean, these are people that are really committed to buying the phone. So if you look at street estimates, really, it's interesting from a revenue growth perspective, in this cycle, I think we're going to see the strongest growth in the March quarter. So it's post-holiday, and I think expectations are already there in terms of when the supply is really going to be able to meet strong demand. Uh, Dave, I, I want to broaden out because we were talking about the broader market and the jitters that are kind of spreading uh, throughout the S&P 500 and uh, other broad indexes. And I'm just wondering, I mean, 
Isn't this a buying opportunity? Because nothing really is creating the fundamental uh, insecurity that would prompt a longer longer sell-off. Well, at least you can understand why investors would think of, the, of that possibility. There, there are two bits of detail that come into play here. One is that we've just gone through half a dozen trading days where the S&P 500 had a range of less than three-tenths of a percentage point from high to low on the day. And that's a record, according to the folks at LPL Financial. So therefore, no volatility. We've gone to some volatility today. Beyond that, you know, we're still looking at the potential for a record in terms of the amount of time that the S&P 500 has gone without pulling back 3% from a high. We haven't seen that happen since early November, just before the presidential election. So, you know, the question is whether that buy the dip approach that has been working in markets for the last several months rears its head as today's trading goes on. Well, no dip today in the shares of Verizon. And a lot of that has to do with the new data plan, the unlimited data plan that they have put forth, which is, I believe, similar to the T-Mobile plan, although there are some differences. I don't think you get Netflix or so on. But, you know, $40, four lines, unlimited data, stocks, uh, you know, stocks moving higher. The stock's up more than 3%. That's a big move for Verizon. that is a big move for them. They had a decent quarter. I was really sort of braced for the potential for weakness here. And instead, really, you measure the health of a business on wireless net additions, and they had very good net additions. So I think, uh, you know, people are responding to that. It really was is sort of kind of a relief, certainly for me. John Butler, thank you so much for joining us. John Butler is Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And of course, our thanks to Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Editor, Columnist and Blogger at M Live Go on the Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.